Chris. Let him have it, Chris. Let him have it, Chris. Let him have it, Chris. Button. Switch. You're listening to Aerial View on WFMU East Orange and worldwide on the internet at WFMU.org. Sitting here with uh, Dr. Thomas Azzolini of uh, Hoboken, New Jersey, who is my podiatrist. And I've talked a lot about my podiatrist on this show, but I actually, it's been a while. We've been trying to arrange a time to sit down and talk about what exactly is happening in terms of my feet. But first, I want to find out a little bit, a little bit about you, if possible. And um, I'm going to start with your last name. Have you, do you know what it means? Have you ever asked any members of the family I, I actually what the don't. translation is? I or? actually don't know what it means. And in fact, uh, I've been asked by a lot of Hoboken people if I'm a Molfetese, that part of Italy, mm-hmm. um, because that seems to be a, a common name in Molfetta. And all I really know about my family tree in terms of the Azzolini name is that my grandfather Azzolini um, was orphaned when he was about uh, eight or nine years old into a furniture-making apprenticeship. Mm-hmm. Um, trained for about five or six years, came to the United States to work for a kind of really high-end furniture shop, and that's how we, you know, our line, so to speak, uh, started in the United States. But I don't really have a really good handle on um, our family uh, genealogy. He actually did his apprenticeship in Modena, which is northern Italy, 
Um, but I, I don't really know much about my family history, quite honestly, and I, and I don't know what the name means. Do you know uh, when they came over here or uh, how long ago? Uh, family it was like kind of turn of the century yeah. uh, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and he moved, I think, originally to the Bronx uh, and then settled in Staten Island, uh, which is where my dad, well, actually, my dad was born, I think, as a child in the Bronx and then very soon after moved to Staten Island. And then kind of my family is more Staten Island based. Yeah. Um, was it, were there professionals in the family, or what did they do for a living? A lot of the a lot of craftspeople. Yeah. Like uh, my dad himself was uh, a locksmith for a while. He was a mason. Uh, my uncle was a master carpenter. So a lot of people working with their hands. Uh, yeah. In my family, actually, the first quote unquote professional person, uh, I guess you would say, uh, in my family was my brother John. The first person who went to college. Yeah. Uh, was my older brother John. Uh, so you know, we're only second generation. Yeah, uh, Italian. So. so, what did he study? He uh, actually is a physicist. Um, he worked for NASA for an extended period of time, and now um, he retired from NASA. But he works for a subcontractor who's basically only uh, client, pretty much, is NASA. So he still kind of works for, for NASA, and he lives in uh, in Maryland by the Goddard Space uh, Station. Oh, here. okay. Wow. So, so he's working on actual rocketry and yeah, he does uh, like guidance control systems and uh, you know stuff that's a, a bit of a, my pay grade. You know, yeah, exactly what he does. But um, if you go to visit him at Goddard, do you need like security? He needs to. You know, I did or, visit him at Goddard, but it was a long time ago when I was younger. And yeah, you you know, I think he probably met me and had to bring me in. Right. Yeah. Um, but uh, and then my other brother Richie is a is a chef. Okay. Um, so again, working wow, with, working, with the, working with the hands. Different yeah, yeah. Fields. Yeah. That's interesting. Is he like a, a chef who owns a restaurant? No, or? he he actually trained uh, at the Cordon Bleu uh, mm. in England, and then he did a, a pastry apprenticeship in in Paris, and he came back and he did a tremendous amount of private uh, chef work. Uh, he worked for de Kooning, the, yeah. the artist. Yeah. He worked to his family. He worked for people who I believe were the. Um, like the editor of uh, New York Magazine, and just a, a bunch of different, a def- bunch of different. Yeah, I, I know kind. a woman who does that. A friend of mine, his girlfriend, and uh, she works for like uh, I mean, billionaires, and they, she, they basically she just cooks for them. Yeah, <laughs> she goes on vacation with them to Martha's Vineyard, and will live there and cook. Yeah, and just make the meals night after night. I never knew such things existed, but I probably. Yeah, should it's, realize that people do that. It's yeah. pretty interesting. I mean, he wow. he's the last gig that he had, which I think is is over with now. He was working for a family who's old money uh, out in California, uh, who are part like railroad money and, and that type of thing, and they owned some incredible uh, real estate um, in like Lake Tahoe, um, uh, lakefront real estate, where uh, my wife and I and my daughter got to visit him because they'd actually allow him to have guests yeah. to come and visit him. Wow. Uh, and basically, he, he made, like, the main meal of the day. They had other cooks that did, like, breakfast and, and other things. So, um, you know, he wasn't opposed to work, but he wanted to have a lot of time to travel the world. Uh, yeah. He's kind of an interesting guy, and he never really wanted to own a restaurant. So he's not a 90-hour-a-week kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so, well, were there other things you were thinking about doing before you decided to become a doctor? Well, as a kid, I mean, it was always kind of science-oriented. Mm-hmm. So uh, I had a... I have a deep interest in the outdoors, uh, so I was thinking about becoming an oceanographer for, for a while, uh, and uh, I was strongly considering actually going to psychiatry when mm. I was in college, but just kind of stuck with the pre-med thing and, and you know, kind of followed it through, and you know, I'm glad I did, but I, I often think what it would have been like to have pursued other careers. Yeah, um, so are you a good swimmer? Because I guess if you're going to... Not, on. not really, but not really particularly. I get swimmer. My daughter's <laughs> right. a lot better swimmer than I am. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but I love the ocean. I love to fish. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I just love the outdoors in general. Do you yeah. still follow what goes on in those worlds in terms of? Yeah, I mean, right, my friends of mine who are big fishermen talk all the time about how we're destroying the ocean and oh, yeah. we're all going to be dead. Soon well, I mean, we're we're, we're killing of, our food stock. Yeah, we're we're kind of destroying our planet in yeah. general. You know, uh, yeah. you, you think about the things like the uh, the massive uh, pool of uh, bits of plastics that float out in a swirling mass in the middle of the oceans that are bigger than some continents. Yeah, um, you know, we've we've done some irreparable harm, um, and I really think that you know if we don't kind of take this really seriously really soon, 
um, we're going to really feel the repercussions. We may not feel it, but our yeah. kids and our kids' kids are really in for a world of hurt uh, right. if we don't take this tremendously seriously. I mean, I think one of the things that Bernie Sanders kind of brought to light uh, is that, you know, if we were attacked as a country, we would band together and we would do what it takes to, uh, to defend our, our nation. And I, I kind of feel like this is a similar situation that, mm. you know, we need to take this like it's a war. We, we have to do something about climate change and take it seriously and, you know, yeah. excess. excess. <laughs> um, we're at a very interesting moment right now because I think you're right. If we don't buckle down and decide that this is the actual threat that it is as opposed to some other kind of thing that just provokes fear in people and is not really that much of a threat. Right. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree. And I, I worry about the moment slipping away from us. You know? yeah, so. I think it's already slipping away. Yeah. And, I, and I, mean, I think it's it's really a shame from so many fronts because if we're wrong, if for somehow we were wrong, and we're not, but if we were wrong and climate change wasn't really happening, uh, but we took all the steps to, to avoid it, what would we do? We'd build a great economy built on renewable energy. Uh, you know, we'd have fix our infrastructure. Fix our infrastructure. Have less pollution. Put a lot of people to work. Um, put a lot right. of people to work. So I mean, it's yeah. it's kind of like it would just be a win win win. I just don't understand why people could possibly be opposed because um, they think Jesus is going to take care of them. That's why. I yeah, mean, it's among the reasons. As far I, as I'm would, concerned, I would but. say I'm very <laughs> on board with that thought. Yes. Um, but so when you were in med school, were, were there other things you were thinking you could actually do besides podiatry? Or what well, was well I actually went to dental school. You went to dental school? Yeah, for uh, a year. Um, Here or uh, In Buffalo, in the Buffalo. state, state okay. dental school. And uh, we actually took all our classes, uh, all our, our basic science classes with the medical students. Uh, and I had done quite well there and uh, actually had offers if I wanted to switch over into the medical school, um, which I gave some thought to. But... Dentistry was in a, in a really weird place in, yeah. the, in the early 80s. There was kind of a glut of dentists. Um, and we were hearing directly from our professors, like, don't think about practicing in a major metropolitan area because they're all saturated. And I, I didn't really want to be a dentist. I wanted to be a, an oral maxillofacial prostheodontist. Mm. It was like someone who reconstructs post-cancer victims' faces with prosthetics. So it's a long, long haul after dental school. Yeah. And you know, you start to hear like, well, there's gonna to be too many of you. Uh, it's a little daunting. Um, so podiatry was uh, something- You never tell lawyers that when they're <laughs> learning no. to be lawyers. They, see, they should be. There's, there's a lot a of unemployed lawyers, lawyers right now. Right. It's but, interesting that we say that. Uh, yeah. Is that who says that? The well, the, it, I mean, the AMA actually, or something? Well, I mean, at that time, I mean, it was pretty interesting. I mean, I guess I give them. Um, credit for being so upfront about it, but even a lot of our professors just wanted to let us know their thoughts in terms of, you know, look, you're, you're entering a field that happens to be very crowded. And we had kids who had parents who were dentists who told them, don't go into dentistry. Mm. Meanwhile, that glut passed and dentists do quite well for themselves really? for the most part. Yeah. So, uh, you know, but at the time, you know, that, that was a bit of a concern and you know, it was a long haul that I was looking at. So. I just happened to be dating somebody in dental school who knew somebody that switched over to podiatry. Mm -hmm. So I got up one day, I went to the undergraduate uh, counselor, guidance counselor at, the, at, at a Buffalo University and I asked him about podiatry. Yeah. Uh, and what I saw really interested me. Uh, it would seem like a really growing field and uh, one thing led to another and I, and I applied to podiatry school. Why, why would it have been a growing field in the 80s? Was it well, I mean, it's still a growing field. It, yeah. it, it's somewhat underserved and there's a tremendous amount of foot and ankle pathology, as you know, yeah. uh, personally. Um, and it seems to me like a tremendous amount that's undiagnosed yeah. as well. Well, there's a lot that's undiagnosed and there's a lot, you know, then, uh, podiatry and, and I think the public's perception of foot health has kind of gone through an epiphany. The way that, you know, years ago, and I'm going back maybe 50, 75 years, people just thought like your teeth fell out when you got older. Yeah. Um, they didn't realize that there were things you could do to prevent periodontal disease and decay and, and whatnot. And when you talk to a lot of much older generation people in this country about foot problems, they're kind of like, well, your feet hurt. You work hard, your feet hurt, you know. Uh, you know, which is there's some truth to that, but uh, there's also a lot of things that are deformities and problems that uh, are causing some of that pain, especially when it's in the extreme. 
that now we have the ability to treat and treat successfully and sometimes treat at an earlier stage to prevent you know further problems so um, but so. was there also an awareness then about, uh, I mean, and, and among these older people that these foot issues are related to so many other skeletal issues that I, they're, I, they're creating I, other issues? Well, skeletal issues and, and uh, systemic issues like diabetes and, uh, you know, other, you know, like the, the obesity epidemic in the country. And there's a lot of reasons why people's feet who may have inherent problems get exacerbated by, you know, situations that they're in, systemic diseases that they have, lifestyle choices. Um, so I think when I had started in looking into podiatry, I think that was already starting to turn. People were realizing that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think it's become much more heightened uh, right now. And I think, you know, medicine, as you and I have talked about, you know, in the past, is a, a bit of a tough field to be in right now from, from reasons that have nothing to do with practicing medicine but have to do with the system mm -hmm. and insurance and reimbursement and lack of access for patients and other things. But... If you're going to be in medicine, I think podiatry is an extremely interesting and vibrant field, you know, to be in. Right so now. there's not a glut of podiatrists in other words. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of podiatrists in some of the more major metropolitan markets, uh, but even in those markets, if you're good and you situate yourself properly, uh, there's still the ability to be quite successful professionally. Uh, but there's areas of the country where you know you basically just hang up a shingle and you're going to do pretty well because there's just not. It's not being serviced properly. Well, I know in my history, it, you know, I, I had been to see all different kinds of doctors, eye doctors and general practitioners and uh, urologists, and it had never occurred to me to go see a podiatrist. I might be one of those people you're referring to because it wasn't until I was married and my wife said, uh, you know, if you're having constant pain, maybe you should see about getting some in inserts, you know, go right. get some orthotics. and. Was like orthotics. I, what do you mean the like Dr. Scholl's that I go down to the Dwayne Reed and buy that kind of thing? And she said, No, they have, they'll custom make them, and you know uh, it might improve improve the pain that you're feeling at the end of the day. And that's I think when I came to see you because she had been a patient, and that was what 2009 I want to say. I mean it was it was right. a while ago, you yeah. know. And um, I think at that point you had done an examination. And you had said to me back then, you are a candidate for a foot reconstruction. You know, mm -hmm. at some point, you're going to have to do something about this, which I had parked in the back of my mind for quite a while. And I don't know if it was just a case of pure avoidance or what it was. Uh, that it's a big I, commitment. You know, yeah. Um, but obviously, it was uh, this whole thing, the surgery that I'm going through now is triggered by losing the last set of orthotics I had made uh, at the Mermaid Parade last year at Coney mm -hmm. Island. And I came home without my boots, and my boots had my inserts in it, and I had to come, come back and see you. And at that point, you were like, yeah, if you don't do something now, we're facing a major issue, you know? So um, is that typical? Do you find that people just put things off until it's getting to the point of it's either too late or it's about to be too late? I mean, it varies. You have people that are proactive, you know, uh, I'd like to say, you know, uh, more and more so, especially the more educated clientele is, is tends to be a bit more proactive about their health in general. Um, but yes, you know, in some of these problems, like some of the things that, that we're dealing with you in particular, it's kind of an insidious uh, type of thing. You know, you can have uh, a flat foot deformity, you can have structural changes to your foot, you can have muscular imbalances to your foot that cause you some discomfort, but you continue to function and you push through, going back to that adage, hey, I've worked hard today, my, my feet are going to hurt. Uh, but then it gets to a point where people start to realize it's beyond that they're just having pain at the end of the day. They really just can't function anymore. They can't do the things they used to do. Uh, and it, it, it tends to accelerate you know, over time. So we catch a lot of people that are not beyond help, uh, but that have let the problems uh, get to a point where there's really significant pathology, significant deformity. Um, luckily, there's almost always something we can do, and sometimes that is conservative. You know, we have patients that might have very significant deformity, uh, but just have a health status or other reasons why they're not good surgical candidates. Mm -hmm. um, some of which can be, again, social things. Uh, you know, maybe they're addicts or maybe they're, uh, uh, you know, have mental disability that won't allow them to follow a post-operative course properly. But, uh, but a lot of times, or the, the majority of the times, we can find a path for them 
in terms of improving their function. Uh, and a lot of times it's a combination of surgical uh, and medical and supportive measures. You know, it's, a, it's really a, a very complete package. You know, your, your, your gait and the way your foot interacts with the ground, it's what we like to call it. It's a closed kinetic chain. So as your foot hits that ground weight-bearing surface, it affects your ankle, it affects your knee, it affects your hip, it affects your back. Um, so and you can't really completely separate all those things. Um, you know, so you have to really look at the deformity as, as a whole, how it affects the person's gait and joint. Um, are most people, you know, because you were talking about a flat foot deformity, and, and um, I, I mean, I had always known when I was a kid that mm -hmm. I had very flat feet, that I didn't have an arch compared to some other people I knew. We made a, it was a joke about how it ran in the family. Is, is that what I was dealing with, or was there something else going on? No, it was likely that you yeah. had a lot of uh, predisposing biomechanic and genetic factors that, that you already had a hypermobile foot, a foot that was unbalanced as a child. Um, I will tell you that you know my particular residency training, I did a tremendous amount of pediatric surgery. Uh, it was just the people I trained with uh, down in Atlanta, Georgia, were kind of on the forefront in podiatry of doing a lot of reconstructive pediatric surgery, especially for flat foot deformity. And I take that very seriously because I'm a parent, and, and I know when you have a parent with an 8 or 9 or 12-year-old child in your office uh, that you see a type of deformity that is so severe that you really feel that this patient should have surgery and that it's almost going to be a disservice to them not to do surgery. Uh, it's a really big decision for that parent to make and to internalize the information you give them uh, and to make that decision. Um, and so I don't take it lightly and I, and I try to be very, um, uh, a lot of economy of use in terms of surgery for, for pediatric patients, even with the training that I got. But I do do a fair amount of pediatric surgery. And it, like in your case, your foot probably could have been realigned uh, sometime between the ages of, say, 7 and 8 to maybe 13 to 14, and that would probably involve using certain types of bone grafts to realign your midfoot and rear foot. Uh, we do this uh, on a, you know, a regular basis, and it's just dramatic, the change in these child's feet. And uh, you know, we realize it because a lot of times the deformity is bilateral, and we'll do one foot, and the child himself or herself will have a lot of apprehension about having the surgery done. And five or six months later, when we're talking about doing the other foot, they're like, they're really on board. Like they right. want that other foot done because they've seen the change themselves. Well, I, I mean, I would have been seven or eight in like 1970. So what was the state of podiatry then? I mean, would they have been doing that kind of surgery? Well, some or? people would have been doing it, but, but it would have been orthopedics, uh, yeah. not podiatry at that time. Uh, and even in orthopedics... Um, you know, the advancements that have been made in the understanding of the biomechanics of the foot, uh, the advancements that have been made in terms of uh, different types of bone grafting materials, internal fixation uh, uh, devices that allow us to do these procedures now with great precision um, and with much more consistent results, you know, just continues to advance. I mean, another thing I feel, you know... Do you find that exciting, by the way? Because you said earlier you've always been interested in science. Oh, it's so incredible. Is that the part it's incredibly that exciting. It feels I mean, you I, as a doctor yeah. is that there's, the technology is always advancing. So I, I have the privilege of, of running a three-year reconstructive surgical residency program, um, soon to have 15 residents. It's a three-year program, so it's five, five, and five in terms of, of the residency structure. And being part of that uh, environment, um, we're constantly inundated now with new products, um, new techniques, uh, and it's very exciting because a lot of this stuff is being developed for use clinically in a surgical setting, but it's based a lot of times on very deep science on the biological level uh, in terms of uh, you know, healing response, bone grafting response, um, and you know different types of biomaterials, different types of mechanical materials for fixation devices. And I really have to say that's one of the super exciting things about being in podiatry that if you look at both orthopedics and podiatry, because there's such an overlap right now in terms of foot and ankle uh, reconstruction, it's probably one of the most dynamic parts of both orthopedic and podiatry is foot and ankle, um, again, biomaterials, fixation devices. I mean, right now we're just getting into uh, an era where we're doing total ankle joint replacements, mm. um, which have been around for about 20 some odd years, but for the most part have had very low success rates. 
and we're developing implants now that are actually on the market that we are currently trained in that allow us to replace the ankle joint with an artificial joint with great precision and uh, with a prognosis for um, success that is a multi-year prognosis uh, because all joint implants do tend to wear and fail over time. Yeah. Uh, you but, also mentioned a pretty quick recovery period too, I think. Yeah, with, uh, with a total ankle joint replacement, usually the, the implant is put in, uh, the patient is kept non-weight bearing for a period of maybe three weeks, sometimes four weeks, and even during that period, uh, if the patient's reliable enough, they can have a removal cast to start range of motion, uh, and then they start weight bearing uh, mm. pretty rapidly and start in physical therapy and rehabilitation. Um, you know, again, you have to pick your patient properly. You, you don't want to, unless there's no other choice, to, to be putting this in a 30-year-old because it's just not gonna hold up that long. And that's kind of true of knee implants and hip implants and, and whatnot. The other thing is that the new systems we have now are much more bone sparing. So it used to be that if you put in one of these implants and it failed, you left with a, quite a big void where the implant used to be. Uh, so then if you had to move on to fuse that joint to at least have a, a functional limb again, uh, you were left with a very large limb length discrepancy or you had to do bone grafting to maintain that length. Now we remove much less bone uh, the implants are smaller and you know designed in such a way that if they have to be removed, it's much easier to move on to either a secondary implant because now we even have implants that are specifically made to replace failed primary implants um, or to arthrodesing procedures or other things. So. Uh, again, well, we someday just have a cartridge that you pop into the back of your well, foot? Or... Well, believe it or not, like a lot of these implants, most implants, whether they're, you know, knee or hip or ankle, uh, are a combination of very, very high-density polypropylenes that it's like a billion-dollar industry that they're putting just incredible amounts of money into, making these polypropylenes incredibly durable, um, and a metallic portion that's the actual portion that's implanted into the bone. So... A lot of these implants allow now for replacement of the polypropylene. So you can go through an ankle joint replacement and maybe be 10 years out and, and the, the metallic component's still sitting in pretty good alignment, but the poly has worn. And with a much simpler procedure, we can go in and replace that poly um, and give more life to the same implant. So that's that's pretty interesting. While you're talking about all this, I'm thinking about you know uh, veterans who have been returning you know with either... Uh, loss of limb or mm -hmm. some kind of foot issue. I mean, is some of this research being driven by what's happening there with the uh, Well, I don't know. I know the joint they... replacement, like ankle joint replacement was would be specifically could be credited to that, but but it, you know, in science and in medicine, you build building blocks in mm -hmm. terms of how does this material react to bone? Is it compatible with bone? Can we make a surface on this implant that allows bone to ingrow into it so it attaches more firmly. Um, and some of those things probably came out of basic research that Department of Defense has, has conducted mm -hmm. uh, and then it's carried over and it's, you know, it's kind of a, a swirl of information and people pick different pieces of information that have been proven and then, you know, kind of lace them together into a system, you know, to create a new, new device. Mm -hmm. um, and I will say that, you know, in our country, uh, you know, to, to its credit, we're, we're very buttoned up about, you know, what we let on the market, and especially in terms of medicinals. Uh, but it is a little uh, easier to get uh, implants uh, and fixation devices and things like that at the, on the market as long as you can prove that you're using materials that are biocompatible, um, that have already been used previously. Um, if you're using them in a different manner and you can show, you know, uh, the efficacy of it, 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 they can get on the market a bit quicker. So you see advancements uh, and modifications of existing implants and fixation sets happening, you know, pretty rapidly because it's, it's easy to do. Um, just for the sake of defini definition, if you say biocompatible, that most people tend to think of, you know, uh, the idea of it being rejected somehow by, mm -hmm. by the body. So is that... What biocompatible means is that it's a material that uh, will not cause some sort of uh, attack of the body of the material? Yeah, definitely. Because, I mean, even materials that are biocompatible, I mean, one of the problems with implants is that interface between the bone and the metal 
um, we get something called subsidence, uh, which you can just think of as like kind of a washing out and of the bone where the implant will actually become loose. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons that happen, but part of that is uh, mechanical uh, because of the forces that are on the implant, but part of it is because um, the surface of these implants, especially when they were first designed, were not conducive uh, to having the body want to grow in and, and physically attach. So uh, Zimmer uh, is one of the um, companies, you, know, you probably have heard that name, it's, it's, it's a large implant and, and uh, orthopedic uh, device company. Um, they've uh, developed something called trabecular metal, uh, which is a type of surface coating of their implants that actually encourages um, the bone to actually grow onto the implant. You know, so that's that. You know, I mean, through some kind of uh, well, it has property of its. Uh, you know, it, it has porosity. Uh, porosity. You know, so, so it allows uh, you know actual ingrowth of bone into those little pores in the metal. Right. Uh, and and again. That so the bone could get some purchase, basically. Get yeah, purchase and yeah. actually actually hold on uh, to the implant. In fact, you know, careful what you wish for. So, so one of the problems with some of these devices is that at times the implant needs to be replaced, and, uh, and can be difficult. You can remove it from yeah, the bone. you can, but you it, can. but it, you know, it's more of a difficulty. What's the density it? in terms of the bone as to to the to the metal. I mean, is the well, bone hard, much harder to get through? Or? We talk about something called modules of, of elasticity. So, so one of the problems is that, you know, when you implant a device onto bone, if it doesn't have the same um, biomechanical characteristics in terms of flex uh, and shock absorption and that type of thing, uh, it tends to cause adverse changes to the bone. Um, so the, the bone itself is, uh, you know, obviously not as hard uh, as the implant, uh, but you try to make up for that by these poly portions of these implants, which uh, have more give to them and have a certain amount of shock absorptive property. But you know, implants in general, we're still not at the stage, we don't put an ankle joint implant in somebody and tell them that like, we want you now to try to train for a marathon. Right. This is really more, uh, you know, someone who's generally middle-aged uh, and up, uh, who you're replacing a joint and trying to take them from a point where they have a terribly arthritic joint, which causes them chronic pain, uh, almost to the point for some of them that they just don't ambulate very much anymore, and get them to be ambulatory again, and maybe be able to do moderate exercise or a little bike riding. Um, so, you know, you have to be realistic also about what can be done with these implants. And you, you unfortunately have patients that you know do well uh, and want to push the boundaries, and you know sometimes they, they cause issues. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know as the implants get better and better, um, you're getting to a point where you can increase the scope of the activity that these patients can participate in. So that's pretty exciting too. Well, let's go back to your training for a minute in Buffalo. Is that where you did all of your no, training? No, no. So or? I did one year in Buffalo yeah. in dental school, and then I switched over to New York College of Podiatric Medicine. Okay. Uh, I finished my full four years there, got my doctor of podiatric medicine degree, and then I went down to Atlanta, Georgia, and I did a multi-year surgical residency there. Uh, when I came back up to New York, I did a couple of associateships with some large practices. In 1993, I decided to open on my own. Uh, in 1996, in Hoboken, in Hoboken. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In 1996, uh, the residency program that was being run by what was then called St. Mary Hospital in, in Hoboken uh, ran into some difficulties. It kind of lost its accreditation, mainly due to uh, paperwork issues and things that just weren't being done. Uh, and the administrators and the, the people who actually ran the family medicine residency came to me, uh, I think kind of given the level of my training and said, would you be willing to take this over? Uh, and so it wasn't much of a thought, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't going to let the residency fail and, and kind of let the, the, the residents that were currently there kind of get tossed out on the street. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that's when I started in 1996 and I've been that residency director of that program for the last, uh, 20 years, just about 20 years now. When you were first learning, uh, podiatry, uh, what was the thing that, uh, amazed you the most about the foot? Was there was there anything in particular you thought, gee, I didn't know this. I've been, well, I've been walking my whole life. I had no idea. Well, I mean, the, the biomechanics of the foot and the amount of force that you put through your foot and ankle is just tremendous. Uh, you know, your body weight is multiplied multiple times when you go to a foot strike during, a, during uh, running. 
um, and you know for your body to be designed in such a way to be able to absorb that kind of force and you know when you watch a, a football player making a cut on the field you know it's just tremendous hundreds and hundreds of pounds of force being pushed through these relatively small joints uh, so that was really interesting and for me it was that in relation to surgery trauma of those joints reconstruction of those joints malalignment of those joints and how we could you know bring them back into a uh, better satisfactory functional state by doing surgery mm. so i always wanted to do surgery surgery is really what motivated me um, and uh, you know podiatry is is kind of unique in that, you know, neurologists deal with the nervous system and dermatologists deal with skin. Podiatrists deal with a region of the body. They deal with foot and ankle. So we do some dermatology. We do some neurology. We do some vascular. Uh, but we do a lot of orthopedics of the foot and ankle. And that's really what it's become, uh, you know. Uh, is orthopedics means the bone, essentially? Bone and joint. Bone, bone and joint. Bone okay. and joint surgeons. And, and that's kind of pushed, uh, you know, as medicine has evolved, different subspecialties have pushed into each other's territory. So now you have spine surgeons, some of who are orthopedics and some of who are neurologists or neurosurgeons. Mm. Um, and there's always a little bit of a turf battle there. Uh, so with podiatry, you know, as we went from being kind of more palliative care specialists uh, to being maybe forefoot surgeons and then rear foot surgeons and now very advanced ankle surgeons, uh, for a while there was a lot of push back and forth between orthopedics and podiatry, but podiatry has just grown so rapidly. The level of training has advanced so quickly. Is uh, that growth because, you know, previously it was really focused on repair of injury and now it's about corrective or is there know, something else? You know, I'm going to be honest, that, uh, it, it, it's that, yeah. but, but it's also really because it was a really neglected field. You know, mm. let's face it, 30, 40 years ago, if you were an orthopedic surgeon, you just hung up a shingle, you joined a group, and you were going to be highly successful, both professionally and financially. Um, so they kind of ignored the foot. They were too busy doing knee implants and hip implants and spine surgery and shoulder surgery. Uh, the foot was kind of an afterthought. And, you know, then they did develop a foot and ankle society where they would uh, had some residency programs devoted to foot and ankle. Uh, but it was very small percentage of orthopods in general and general orthopods really didn't get a whole lot of real quality training in, in foot surgery now that's changed uh, and I'm a great believer in, in being very positive about the relationship between orthopedics and podiatry I, I've had great relationships with orthopedic surgeons and continue to do so uh, but now as the younger breed of orthopods have come out and they've been in hospitals training side by side where there were podiatry residencies where there were podiatrists on staff doing surgery I think those barriers, you know, to a very large degree have been eliminated in terms of that kind of competitive nature. And I think it's pretty well accepted that but there's... The uh, growth implies that you have more customers. So yes. the professional organizations you belong to, are they saying we have to raise awareness of how important it is to get your feet taken care oh, of and get a foot checkup and... People get their teeth looked out every year, every six months. So maybe Absolutely. They... The American Podiatric Medical Association has really done a good job of you know, reaching out in, in a multifaceted way to the public, to other healthcare organizations, building affiliations with even, even the American Orthopedic Surgical Societies, um, and definitely in terms of targeting even the general public uh, through different forums. They've had, uh, like USA Today, um, you know, columns, they've had call-in shows where people have been able to call in and ask about, you know, foot and ankle problems. And all that's helped, but I mean, I think it's really also there's just an inherently huge amount of foot and ankle pathology out there. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, at, in Hoboken uh, University Medical Center, podiatrists have a foot and ankle call schedule. Uh, and we really pretty much do almost all the foot and ankle trauma there. And that's just a small community hospital and I don't know, I, I would be misspeaking to tell you these are exact figures, but I wouldn't doubt that close to a quarter of all the people that come through that ER are coming through because they've sprained their ankle, they've stepped on something, they have a splinter, they have an infection, they have a diabetic foot infection. I mean, it's, it's a very prevalent... The guy that was in the bed next to me yeah. was there because somebody stomped on his foot during yeah. a fight or something yeah. happened, you know, so he was... I had a foot injury, yeah. you know. It's, it's very common, yeah. you know. So we fill a niche. And, you know, I think the other thing is, as you and I have talked about before also, 
is that money drives a lot of things. Uh, and podiatry is a very good thing for most of the hospitals they belong to. It's a money-making part of their hospital. Uh, we do mostly outpatient surgery. Uh, even the trauma surgery we, d we do doesn't generally have to be done immediately. It can be scheduled in such a way that uh, allows for cost containment within the hospital. Um, so we've become very popular with hospital administrators because we do a lot of work and mm. we you know, have gotten to the point where as long as the division at the hospital is controlled properly, that people are privileged properly, that you have people that are only doing the work that they really have learned to do, uh, do that work, then you have a very high success rate and you make a lot of money. For the well, hospital. it seems there's another factor to me, which is that the insurance companies are approving this work as well. Yeah. I mean, is it in general, your feet are so essential that yeah. insurance company's not gonna say this is not essential surgery. Well, right? like one, one you asked before, you know, how has uh, the profession marketed itself? So the a APMA, the American Podiatric Medical Association, has done a really good job of showing that preventive foot care, especially in terms of diabetics, saves a tremendous amount of money. Because if you catch a small ulceration or a small infection early on, uh, you know, it could be in the hundreds of dollars to treat that patient instead of what can literally become hundreds of thousands of dollars when you're talking about lengthy hospital stays, amputations, prosthetics, uh, you know, uh, massive amounts of rehabilitation uh, for these patients. So, so it's, it's, it's really a, it's a public health um, positive. I, I knew somebody really recently and, and his, the girlfriend passed away, but she was a diabetic and, you know, I was at the funeral and I'm looking at pictures and uh, there was one picture I couldn't tell what was going on. And as it turned out, she was holding up her foot because that was the next toe that was going to be amputated. Mm -hmm. And I said to this guy, I said, so how many toes did she lose? And it turned out she had lost, I mean, four on one foot and three on another foot or something. Mm -hmm. and, uh, how much is that per toe and how long do you have to recover? How long are you in the well, hospital every time they take off a toe? And well, let's say someone comes in with a single toe that's infected to the point where it's not only uh, has a skin infection, but now it has a bone infection. Frequently, the only way to actually control that infection and stop the spread is to amputate that digit. Yeah. So now you're looking at a patient who's in the hospital, has to be worked up a lot of times before you can even have surgery because they have comorbidities like cardiac problems, their diabetes may be out of control, and a host of other potential problems. Then is that you, comorbidity, is that a complicating factor? Is oh, that, yeah. yeah. Okay. Complicating, and I mean, you can't bring someone to surgery to amputate their toe if they're in, you know, atrial fibrillation or they have some other cardiac problem. And that right. happens, you know, quite frequently. We have, Does that require putting somebody under to amputate a toe, or is that, what, uh, can you do a Generally, local, sometimes local if it's a single uh, digit, it could be done under IV sedation. Sometimes because of these comorbidities, we have to use things like spinal anesthesia or regional blocks because... This is getting very complicated yeah. to remove yeah. a toe. Yeah. So wow. now you're talking multiple days in the hospital, multiple specialists. Uh, we may have to get an MRI with contrast to look to see if the bone's infected, bone scans, IV antibiotics. Let's say the infection turns out to be methicillin-resistant staph. Uh, some of those antibiotics can be thousands of dollars per dose. Wow. So just for that one toe, I mean, it's not unusual to generate a bill that's in the multiple five figures. It can even go beyond. And that's... And now the patient's back six months or a year later, and you're starting this whole cascade over with another that, toe. With yeah. another toe. I mean, is that inevitable? What's in somebody who's that you know, in terms of the the lack of circulation, is that what's going on here? To it, the, it's to the generally feet? it's generally not inevitable. Uh, I, I, you know, some people are you know very just morbidly sick, and you know some things are going to eventually happen to some of these people, even with the best of care, the best of personal attention to their problem, but. The reality is a lot of this has to do with the fact that this country has done a miserable job of preventative medicine, mm. uh, a miserable job of uh, you know, convincing people that you know, the stuff that they put in their mouths every day is going to have a really big effect on their body and these disease processes. So, um, you know, not to sound like a Bernie Sanders campaign, <laughs> but... No, that's fine. But where, where are they doing it well? I mean, when you if you look around, if you talk to colleagues from other nations, for instance, are there are there places where they're like everybody's feet are in great shape and they're doing it well. Well, they... again, it's not even just their feet. Mm -hmm. so, so I mean, it's if you look at some health. of the European nations, right, and you look at their general health, the access that people have to healthcare uh, in those countries, 
you can really draw a pretty straight line towards the uh, decrease in morbidity from, from some of these things. And, you know, it has to do with your demographics. Certain races have, you know, more prevalence for certain diseases. Mm-hmm. I mean, certain things you can't avoid. You're dealt a hand, uh, you know. Uh, but, you know, in this country, the way our healthcare system works, and I think, you know, we've talked about this before in my office, you know, I'm an unusual physician in that uh, I'm a lifelong Democrat and I'm pretty liberal, which mm. doesn't describe probably the majority of physicians. Right. I voted for Obama twice, which would probably you know horrify some of my colleagues. But, um, but because but, they're not behind, they're not down because with they're Obamacare not behind it, and, and 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 I'm really not down with Obamacare either. And, and the way and it's implemented, the way it's implemented, and you know so. And I just think if I if I got to say anything during this interview, this is probably the the most important thing I would want to say. Is that when you look at what we've done with healthcare in this country, we've allowed it to be uh, corrupted and co-opted by corporate interests, and you look at healthcare as it, via via as it, it applies to Obamacare, and you have a system where you've taken now these whatever the figure is now ten or twelve or fifteen million new lives, you've given them to insurance companies to make profit off basically. Yeah. You have them giving these people insurance plans with five and eight and ten thousand dollar deductibles. People that are making twenty thousand dollars a year can barely afford to feed themselves and their family. And now, when they walk into an emergency room, instead of being an indigent patient who gets cared for, and it's somewhat of an afterthought for that system to build them because they know they're not going to get any money from that patient. Now they're dealing with an insured patient. So that insured patient goes in and he generates this massive bill. And you know what? He has a ten or an eight or a $5,000 deductible. He gets sent that bill. And if he doesn't pay it, he goes to collections and his credit is ruined. What happens? You have these people not going into the system. They don't even go to the doctor because they're so afraid of using this health insurance, which they were mandated to get that uh, the system really fails miserably. And that's why, you know, a system where you have Medicare for all, and then you have people who are more affluent that could afford to buy supplemental policies to have all the different bells and whistles, which I think- The Cadillac policy. The Cadillac policy. I I don't think we should ever, you know, I'm a capitalist. I believe in our system of government. I believe in our economic system, but, but, this is not normal capitalism. We've, right. we've set aside these insurance companies and we've basically guaranteed them a payday. Whenever they get to a point in any state where they feel they're going to start to lose money, they just go to the state regulators and say, if you don't let us raise our fees, we're going to stop having to provide insurance coverage for your insurance in the state. So, you know, it's almost impossible for them not to make money. And then when you look at the amount of money, not just the profits, but the amount of money they spend of your premium to pay people to quote unquote manage your care so that when I need to run an MRI on somebody who that I know is necessary, I have to talk to some, you know, a nurse or some primary care doctor who's never been in the OR in Topeka, Kansas about approving my test, they're paying that person a lot of money to basically slow down the amount of tests that are run because that's their modus operandi. So the system is really horribly broken, horribly broken. When you look at other systems like the one in Canada, for instance, I mean, with that, you know, we, uh, as often as I hear from people on the air, uh, for instance, about how um, they're, the, the, there's long wait times if you need something done in Canada, that, that kind of thing. I have Canadian friends who will uh, say it's all bullshit. I mean, that's just bullshit. We have excellent health care up here. I never have to worry about it. I go to the doctor. If I have to see the doctor, right. I mean, and as often as we've heard during this election cycle that that's what we should have down here. There's been so many people still saying that right. that's you know. So, not so, the, work. so this is my take on it. No system's perfect. Mm-hmm. First of all, um, I think that for more elective surgical procedures in some of these systems, let's say a hip replacement, you may have to wait longer. Uh, but I also believe that, you know, we are creative enough in the United States to be able to come up with a hybrid system where you have Medicare um, offered to everybody. And then again, you have people who have the desire to be able to not have to wait for those secondary procedures who could buy supplemental policies that would cover those very things. Mm. Um and there's from a the lot government of, or from some private? That would be from private, I yeah. think. You know, so, so again, we don't have to eliminate the ability to have private insurance. 
But I think if we're going to talk about universal health care and we're going to talk about casting a safety net over our population in terms of health care, you don't do it by giving the insurance companies 15 million new patients, basically letting them charge whatever they feel they need to charge to make a profit and then letting them design these plans in such a way that they really just don't work. So, I mean, that's what I think we've done. And, you know, yes, is someone better off who has one of these plans now that gets, you know, lung cancer and is going to have catastrophic care? Yes, they're better off. So, so let me not make it sound like there's no good parts of this or plan. Or are they better off if they had a pre-existing chronic condition? Absolutely. And, they couldn't. and being able to be more transportability of their health insurance and a lot of other things that were, you know, some basic tenets of what we wanted to do. But, the, you know, look, it was, it's very simple. When, when Obama went down this road, he gave up a card in his hand way too soon, and that was the public option. Because if you had a public option and you said to private insurers, look, we don't want to put you out of business, but we're going to tell these people either you can have straightforward Medicare um, or you can go and you can pay uh, the premium you would have paid to the government in the form of a tax or whatever, however that money would be extracted, um, to this private entity, um, but they have to do it at the same price. You would have forced them to find a way to provide that care at a profit. The profit just wouldn't be nearly as big. So, you know, once so you... Once it's you down get, to lobbyists once again. I mean, oh, yeah. yeah. It's down yeah. to lobbyists and, and to I, and the I insurance think, company. And I think Obama caved too soon. Yeah. And I also think, and this is getting maybe off on a tangent, but, uh, you know, when I voted for Obama, especially the first time, one of the huge things I wanted to see is a huge amount of money put into rebuilding our infrastructure, which I think would have put a lot of construction people employed and architects and all kinds of people, and it would have rebuilt something that's falling apart in our country. Uh, and really, that was paid lip service. And, and this thing in terms of universal health care was put up to the front burner, just like Clinton did mm. with Hillary in his first term. And that's a really tough thing to tackle politically right off the bat. Right. I mean, maybe he felt he had a lot of capital, but I think if he would have started with infrastructure and really re rejuvenated the economy and showed people that we could start to rebuild the country, they mm -hmm. would have been a lot more apt to listen. Be careful, Lily. I had heard this before, and I, I, I guess I'm in agreement too, because it seems like uh, you know now we're talking about well incremental changes. You know, the difference between Bernie and Hillary. And this idea of, well, I don't even want to discuss what would happen if, if Trump becomes president in terms of the healthcare system. I think, I don't, I don't even, I can't even anticipate. Uh, but this idea of like Bernie wanting to just replace this thing and saying, hey, we need to just start over again. And Hillary saying, no, we need to just fix what we already have. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you have a position on this? Is do, Are you thinking, Yeah, I, you know, th I think that um, we need to do some heavy lifting. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think we need a major revamping of the healthcare system. And look, there's, there's a lot of factors at play in terms of political will to do this. You know, I'm not trying to, to, to be a, a saintly about this, but I probably would do worse financially, personally, mm -hmm. under some of these revamped systems. But I just think that, you know, it's just the right thing to do. I mean, it just has to be done. Um, and until it's done on more of a whole scale level, um, I don't think we're, we're really ever going to achieve the kind of healthcare goals that we want to achieve in this country. You know, and again, I, you know, I have friends who, you know, we're in, we're in this New York tri-state area who, uh, you know, work for developers and they work on Wall Street and stuff. And when they hear this idea of, you know, Medicare for everybody, uh, they hear about kind of removing the private sector a bit out of the, the loop in terms of, uh, of providing insurance. Uh, it, it worries them, you know, they see it as a socialized thing. Uh, but, you know, there's just certain things that we do as a nation that are done better when they're done for the good of all. And we necessarily, uh, you know, in some ways minimize the commercialization. You know, we, we, we don't have private police forces. You know, we don't have a private military. Uh, there's certain things where, you know, we can at least have a blend yeah, well, when I was a kid, we also had public utilities, you know, right. I mean, and, and the idea, I think, along with a lot of privatization um, is that now uh, insurance companies, health insurance companies are traded on the stock market, you know, and, and so uh, this idea of returning value to the shareholders, whatever that takes, right. it, it may not be the best thing for the rest of us, but hey, 
And when you talk about, you know, what's for the common good, mm-hmm. uh, this idea of like uh, healthcare should be a right, I, I still don't know why we're having such a hard time selling that idea to people. Yeah, I mean, look, look you, you have this false narrative being sold to people okay. about that the government can't do this right. So, so you, let's take, what is the government? We have a blend right now. It's just not a broad enough blend. So we have Medicare, right? So Medicare, as a physician, it's simple to navigate. You know pretty much what you're going to get paid when you do a procedure. Uh, there's not long waits for approval to, to do the things you need to do. And how does Medicare operate? They take about 8% of the money that goes into healthcare and they use it to administer Medicare. Private insurance companies take on average about a third of the premium. So how anybody could believe that we don't have the capacity to do this right, we're doing it right already. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of physicians worry about this, and I, and, I, and I understand this, and it's a legitimate concern that, that if we went to this Medicare for all, uh, there wouldn't be a marketplace per se, and we'd kind of be at the mercy of what the government was willing to pay us. So, you know, how we structure the decisions that are made on reimbursement to keep it fair, to keep up the, with the cost of living for physicians, for hospitals. I mean, obviously, the, you know, there's difficult decisions to be made, but so what? I mean, you have to make difficult decisions sometimes, and you know. So you're I don't saying think, there's an opposition to becoming essentially a government employee in some way, yeah, or, or because, just or just living in a, in a in a system where you're being paid uh, by a monopoly. But mm. but I don't really see it being a monopoly because you know, look, the reason these systems work in Italy and France and Canada is because there is a two tiered system. Most of those governmental doctors or people that are part part of their public health service. The better ones, the ones that are that are more ambitious, the ones that are more entrepreneurial, they have private offices as well, and that's how they supplement their income because there are wealthy people right. who want a higher level of healthcare and they're willing to pay extra for it, and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Um, so you know, it doesn't have to be one way or the other, but and even even going back to Hillary, if you're going to work on, you know, just rolling out Obamacare, well, then you better not just roll it out, but you better make it a lot better than it is with a lot more control over the costs to the very people that you're trying to get or mandate have these plans. And we haven't even discussed the cost of drugs yet. That's that's the amazing part to me is that now if you introduce pharmaceuticals into the mix, it's a whole other complication. I want to talk about feet for a minute. Sure. Because... You know, we, we had taught, you had mentioned earlier about all this pathology that you see. Can you tell when you see someone walking down the street that they're, you know, not only do they have foot issues, but what foot issues they have? And, and you know, the gait tells you a lot. Yeah. I mean, sure, you can, you can pick things up. But, uh, you know, really to make any quality diagnosis, you not only have to do a hands on physical exam, you generally need, you know, other imaging studies. Uh, and you need to know the person, you need to know what their goals are, what their other health issues are um, you know it's, these are all kind of cliche things but you know you don't, you don't just treat the x-ray as an orthopedic or a podiatric surgeon you treat the patient mm-hmm. but there's truth to that um, you know it's not just the physical deformity that, that presents to you it's how does it affect that particular patient because you can have two people that have fairly similar looking deformities in terms of radiographically and one functions pretty well and really doesn't have a lot of pain and one is you know really has a lot of morbidity from it so right uh you know depends on the age the activity level and a, and a lot of other things so you know you, there's you, no easy way and do you find a lot of people who have just accommodated whatever issue they have in some some way that's you know well by definition you accommodate right yeah. because you, you have to keep walking you, you know unless you're going to be completely non-ambulatory so People compensate and, you know, a lot of times we get patients that come in and their chief complaint is really more of a compensation for another problem. So we'll, we'll treat that chief complaint and try to give them relief. But then we can point out to them that this is happening because of this, this or this. And, you know, for a lot of patients, as long as they've explained to them well, they, they can really see that path. And then when we affect that change on that underlying condition, um, you know, not only does it fix that condition, but the thing they came in with the complaint that they came in with goes away. I was at the flea market this morning and I saw a couple of people on those uh, scooters, you know, mm-hmm. and I, how do you feel every time you see one of those? Is that someone who has just kind of given in to the whatever feet issues they have? And, and uh, do you, are you, does it concern you to see more and more of these things? And, 
you know. Well, it, yeah, it definitely concerns you. I mean, there's times where that's, you know, the only real viable option for people and, you know, they shouldn't be denied that. But in general, a lot of our society is pretty sedate and, mm. and really doesn't get up and get around enough, period. So when you magnify that with age and weight problems and other systemic disease, uh, and then you have localized foot or knee or ankle or hip or whatever problems, um, you know, people do tend to get to a point where they kind of give up. Yeah. And that's really when they spiral downward really fast. Um, so you have to kind of fight that inertia like, like everything else in life. This is Chris T. You've been listening to my interview with Dr. Thomas Azzolini. That was part one, part two next week. See you next Tuesday. See you next Tuesday.